You're listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast. This week, we bring you five messages William Stewart presented at Moody Week 1970. William Stewart was a former businessman and pastor. Now, here is William Stewart on Today in the Word radio. The Bible is very clear, my friends, in defining the character and the nature of God. I think most of us are acquainted with that because we have read it repeatedly. In 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, we read something like this. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is this. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. That is the very essence. That's the very nature of God. But that's only one part of the nature of God. And most believers are inclined to major upon that nature of God. And my colleagues know, that is, who are at the Moody Bible Institute know that in my heart there is the craving, there is the longing to major in and upon this wonderful nature of God and the grace and the mercy that emanates from Him because of His nature. But few of God's children, particularly in these days, consider the other part of the nature of God. How many times have you paused in Hebrews chapter 12 at verse 29 where we read thundering out by the Spirit of God the pronouncement, our God is a consuming fire. Now I know that the majority of people would rather that I or they would rather just spend their time in the area of the liberty that belongs to the child of God because he's a recipient of the grace of God. Paul said in his epistle to the Galatians, chapter 5, verse 1, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again in the yoke of bondage. Right! And I agree with you, dear Paul, but wait a moment. He continues in that chapter to verse 13, I believe it is, where he says... Now, brethren, we are called unto liberty, but give not, use not that liberty for occasion to the flesh. We can major upon the liberty that is ours by the grace of God and because of it. But how often the child of God has succumbed to the plight that seemingly has settled down over the church of the Lord Jesus that they use that liberty of the grace of God to give the flesh occasion to express itself in one way or another. We must not forget that our God is a rigid disciplinarian. He is a consuming fire. That's why we read right here in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, this word, follow peace with all men and Holiness without which no man can see the Lord. Now, for a message like that to be expressed by a servant of the Lord, he certainly must have the strength within himself provided by the Spirit of God to turn from the desires of the public to hear smooth and soothing things and to give the message of God, though it is a message of judgment, however it might cut across their opinion, even at the expense of our own lives. One of the men that God could choose as a messenger for his message 
to his people after the flesh, Judah and Israel, was that man Amos, whose name is the caption of one of the minor prophets, the third in line of the minor, uh, of the minor prophets of the Old Testament. And we read, beginning at verse 1, the words of Amos, how significant that is. With what importance I read those, that little expression. Words of Amos, does that mean that I'm to pursue in the reading of his prophecy? That the words that I read are his words? Not so. For in answering Amaziah the priest, in the seventh chapter of this book that bears his name, beginning at verse 14, he said, I was not a prophet, nor was I a prophet's son, but I was an herdman and a gatherer of sycamore fruit. The Lord took me from following the flock. And he said unto me, Go prophesy unto my people Israel. Therefore hear thou the word of the Lord. So I must understand that the words of Amos were not just his words. Whatever he had to say, either by lip or by life, was the word of God. And one cannot read far in this brief minor prophet's message without hearing again and... Uh, trembling under the thundering pronouncements of God as a consuming fire. Now I'm sure that as Amos would proceed, and the method, unique as it was, to approach Israel with God's message of judgment, and that procedure and method is a very unique thing in this respect that he announced to Israel God's judgment upon all their enemies. And Israel could say, that's right, give it to them, Lord, give it to them, Lord. But then before he concludes in chapter 2, verses 4 and 6, he comes to Judah and to Israel. Thus saith the word of the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and four, I will not remove punishment from you. And verse 6, thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not remove the, the punishment from Israel. My wife, I only wish that she could be by my side today. She came from not a large family, considerably a small family, father and mother and two children. She was the youngest of the two. The oldest was a brother, and he was almost a giant so far as stature was concerned. She always felt he had everything going for himself and she had so little. He was great in stature and he was handsome, and he was talented. And uh, he always exercised over her the same attitude. But there would be times that his mother would uh, have to exercise that strong hand of discipline, and she would get him and take him into the room and clobber him well, if I may use that terminology. And my wife said as a girl, she would stand outside the door and listen to mother wailing away at Tim. And she said, you know, I would just yell out, that's it, mother, give it to him. That's it, mother, give it to him. And you know, the child of God, like Israel and Judah of old, and like my dear wife when she was a girl, we can sit and we can drink in all of the announcements that, of the judgment of God that are going to fall upon those who are rebels to God, the unregenerate. My wife said, Usually when she would say that after her brother was just in orbit crying, you know, that out the door would reach that hand of her mother and uh, get her by the arm and pull her in and uh, shellac her good too. So
so the believer needs to understand that if God is going to judge the unsaved, he's going to judge the believer. But the way and the procedure and the method of God's judgment that is announced by Peter in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17 and 18, judgment must begin at the people of God, the house of God. And if judgment first begin at us, what shall be the end of them who obey not the gospel of God? For if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the sinner and the ungodly appear? Oh, child of God, remember, God has a nature that is strong as a disciplinarian. Now shall we continue in chapter one? Let's read about the message of Amos. The words of Amos from among the herdmen of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and the days of, of, of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. He said, the Lord will roar out of Zion. Oh, what a pronouncement of judgment. As the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus spoke in grace. He spoke with words of mercy. But as the Lion of the tribe of Judah, and God hath committed all judgment unto the Son, says John 5, 22. He will roar, and those who will not hear him in mercy, the soft appealing invitation of grace, are going to hear his thundering judgment, will roar out of Zion. And the habitation of the shepherds shall mourn, and the top of Carmel shall wither. Now at verse 3, as we begin to read of God's definite judgments upon the enemies of Israel, let us recall the fact that this message is not simply to Judah and to Israel through the person of Amos. For all these things happen unto them for ensamples or illustrations and are written for our admonition upon whom the end of the ages are come. What God has said through Amos, though it was several thousand years ago, to his people, God is stay, still saying to his people today, whatsoever you do in word or deed, you better do in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father, for our God is a consuming fire, and he expects his children to follow after peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. I am not propagating to you sinless perfection, eradication of the old nature, but I am simply calling your attention to the fact that as children of God, it is time for us to remember there's more to God than just his nature love. He is a rigid disciplinarian. Now will you begin reading with me please, verse three of chapter one. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions and for four I will not remove the punishment from them, or remove the punishment at all. In other words, your judgment is coming. Your judgment is coming. Now, I think most of us are acquainted with the expression for three transgressions. What does it mean? I recall when I was a youngster and my father was, uh, he was a good disciplinarian also. My father was at home on this Sunday afternoon and uh, I and my three brothers were out in a vacant lot playing football with the neighbor boys. Uh, we didn't have any, love, any more love for those neighbor boys than they had for us. 
and something happened, something went wrong. I don't know what it was. I didn't happen to be in the huddle when it happened. Um, but all of a sudden, the brother just immediately younger than myself and the fellow his age among the neighbor boys, there was a war and a struggle going on and blood was really flying. And the first thing I knew, the second pair was at it and the blood was really squirting and the third and the fourth and I stood there with my foot on the football and uh, I was watching them. All of a sudden I heard thundering from the window of our home, Bill, stop those boys. And then it came again, Bill, stop those boys. Well, why should I stop them? We were winning the victory. Everything was going our way. Those fellows were getting it. I felt they deserved it. Why should I stop them? I never heard from my father again, but I felt my father. Somehow or another, he's, he, he just sort of snuck up on me with a long peach tree limb. And the first whack caused me to go about three feet off the ground. And I moved along toward that house, you know, and I couldn't hold it. I was bellering like a bull. I'm sure everybody in the block heard it. When I arrived in the house, my father walked up to me and just put his face nose to nose with mine. And he said, uh, haven't I always told you that I will speak twice, but the third time, action. For three transgressions and for four, see. Now, when he speaks three transgressions of Damascus, Damascus is the capital, if you please, of Syria. And he says, Damascus, I have spoken thrice to you by your transgressions. Now the fourth one, I don't speak. Look at verse four, if you will. I will send a fire. What is our God? He is a consuming fire. If you would take each of Israel's enemies, Go to verse 6, if you will, please. Look now for three transgressions of Gaza, and for four I will not remove the, trans, uh, uh, the punishment. But look at verse 7. I will send a fire. If you will go to the next enemy, that begins in verse 9. And if you look at verse 10, God will send a fire. He's still the consuming fire. And if you will go to verse 11, to the next enemy of Israel, and look at verse 12. God says, I'm going to send a fire. Go to verse 13, the next enemy of Israel. But verse 14 says, I will send a fire. And right on into chapter 2, verse 1, the next enemy. But verse 2 says, he will kindle a fire, send a fire. Our God is a consuming fire in his disciplinary action toward not only his enemies, but his own children. Now, Damascus, being the capital of Syria, God says, for the last transgression, now I'm not going to remove the punishment. It is yours. What was the atrocity of Syria? What was the atrocity of Damascus that brought finally the disciplinary measure of God upon them? Well, you see, they desired to enlarge their borders. Aggression seemingly had taken control of the people of Syria. And Damascus being the capital, naturally all of these procedures evolved from there. And they took some of Israel's territory, particularly around Gilead. And those Israelites who lived in the area of Gilead, the Syrians took their threshing instruments of iron. If you want to look at it, look please at the latter part of verse 3. 
took their threshing instruments of iron, ran those threshing instruments over the inhabitants that they had captured in the territory of Gilead of Israel, and tore their bodies into ribbons of flesh. God says, this is as much as I can take. I'll send fire upon you. You say, well, why should God get uh, exercised about that and disturbed about it? Because all is fair in love and war. Now, that's the way we look at it. And that's the way we proceed. My friend, God has different standards. All is not fair in love and war. God says, you've gone far enough. This is war, but I look upon it as a transgression and I'm going to punish you for it. Amen. You remember when God had the children of Israel at Kadesh Barnea. He said to Moses, take the children of Israel in. But Moses resorted to democratic measures and having sent in spies to spy out the land, the majority of them returned with a, with a uh, reverse report saying, we can't go in, we appear as grasshoppers in the sight of the residents of the land. And so Moses says, all right, then we shall go in another direction. And he took them into the uh, wilderness. And for 40 years, they wandered around in a place that you and I could walk over in seven days leisurely. And ultimately, the judgment of God took its toll. And the, and the floor of the desert was strewn with the bleached bones of the people of Israel who had gone in disobedience. But then when you open the book of Joshua to chapter 1, you have Joshua and the children of Israel. That is, the children of those who died in the wilderness, standing at the river Jordan. And God says to Joshua, Now therefore arise and go over this Jordan, thou and all this people with you into the land, which I do give to them, even to the children of Israel. Joshua, opposite to Moses, goes across the river Jordan, and all the people pass over Jordan, clean over Jordan, says chapter 3, verse 17. When you get to chapter 6 of the book of Joshua, Verse 1, Israel now in the land, the place of God's choosing, is confronted with their first great obstacle, like the believer in the advancement in his or her spiritual life. We read that Jericho, now Jericho was straightly shut up because of the children of Israel. None went in and none came out. That literally means that it was walled up and no one could go in or out of Jericho but by legal permission. But this place was sitting right in the stark in the way of advancement of the children of Israel in the land. So God says to Joshua and the children of Israel, don't worry, I'll remove this obstacle for you. And the way he did it, you recall, they were to walk around the walls of Jericho once every day, and the priests were to blow their trumpets. And on the seventh day, they were to do it seven times. The priests were to blow their trumpets, and then the people were to shout. And though God says, I'll bring the walls down. And in verse 18, God says, And ye in any wise keep yourselves from the accursed thing. Now, what the children of Israel had to see about Jericho didn't appear to be cursed. It didn't seem to be corrupt. It didn't appear to be an abomination. It was attractive to them. It was appealing to them. I'm just trying to point out to you, my dear heart, that God has standards of evaluation that are vastly different to ours. And we may say, Lord, why would you judge Damascus? Why would you send fire upon the nation of Syria? Because they went to war with Israel and took and expanded their borders just a little bit to take in Gilead of Israel. And even though in the pursuits of war, they had to engage in a slaughter of slaughtering the inhabitants of Gilead with the threshing instruments of iron. There the prairies and the meadows were just nothing but uh, a bed of human flesh. Oh Lord, why would you do that? Because God looks at it differently than we look at it. 
Sometimes I think that the grace of God blinds the child of God to the holiness of God. Amen. There was one man, as you know, looked at it through his own eyes. And we read verse 1 of chapter 7 of the book of Joshua. But the children of Israel committed a trespass and the accursed thing. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, of the son of Zareb, the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed thing, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against the children of Israel. Why? Because of Achan. When you get down to about verse 24, you will remember that Achan, after he's brought before Joshua in that uh, tribunal, Joshua said, make confession, son, to God. And Achan said, oh, I saw a good Babylonian garment, and I took it after the walls of Jericho came down. What's wrong with that? It was a beautiful thing, goodly Babylonian garment. I saw a wedge of gold of 50 shekels weight. Now what's wrong with that, Joshua? And I saw 200 shekels of silver. I took all of these things. What's wrong with that? Well, so far as your standards are concerned, there isn't anything wrong with it. But God says it was an abomination to him in the 18th chapter of the book of Leviticus. Jericho and all that was in it was defiled before God. Oh, if I could say anything to you, wherever you are as a child of God, see to it that even in this 20th century, when there is so much modification of the demands and commands and the restrictions of God that he levies upon the individual as commandments of love, see that you modify your standards to where they comply with that of God. So the first thing God says, I will punish you. I will send a fire. And you know where he's sending the fire in Damascus? He said, I'm going to start with those at the top. With the king, Hazael. With his son, Ben-Hadid. And God says, I'm going to scorch the earth, beginning from the very top. But when you get to verse 5, he says, and I'm going to break the bar of the gates of Damascus. Break the bar? What's that? Well, you know, there were gates in the walls of the cities of those days. And when those gates were closed at night for the security of the residents on the inside uh, from the people without, the enemies without, there was a bar placed across those gates so that uh, the enemies from without could not make a secret entrance during the night hours into the city. God says, I'm going to break that bar. My judgment upon you is that I'm going to remove your so-called security. I don't mean to imply to you, my dear friend, that our standing before God is children of God because we sin as children of God. I don't mean to imply to you that our standard is disturbed whatsoever. But I want the unsaved to know that when God the judge, when God the disciplinarian, that love, that nature that's turned into wrath, when that day comes that God will roar out of Zion upon the unsaved, he's going to remove your security. Oh, often we fix our security in things that are material and temporal. And I believe that's why the Holy Spirit caused John to write in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. And I saw a great white throne in him that sat upon it, from whose face the heaven and earth fled away, and there was found no place for them. Now, if you want something to put goose pimples on you, just by vision, inject yourself into that scene that is yet to come. Because, believer, you're going to be there. You're not going to be there to be judged, but you're going to be there to help the Savior judge. Do you not know the saints shall judge the world? Says Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, 2. You're going to be there all right. You're going to help him judge. But can you see the mass of humanity 
unsaved, unregenerate, standing there, and suddenly the thing that they thought was security for time and eternity, earth itself, where they had amassed a fortune of material prosperity. All of a sudden, that that they felt secure in all their lifetime disappears from under their feet, and they're suspended in midair before that throne from which there will not be mercy to emerge, but there will be the roaring judgment of the Lamb of God. Can you imagine it? And I'm inclined to believe that so far as temporal security is concerned for the believer, that though he judges us in love, my son despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he judges, he chastens, and no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them who are exercised thereby. I'm inclined to believe that the church is supposed to learn a lesson from Damascus and God's dealings with the Syrians when he punished them and removed their security. I say again, I'm inclined to believe that often God has to inject his hand into the affairs of his children and remove from them the security of husband or father's job, employment, at times, or maybe the bank account. Sickness comes along, death comes along, so many multiple things that God uses to remind us as he did the people of Syria, I'm going to remove your security from you. I'll break the bar and the wall of Damascus, or in the gates of Damascus. Now we move on to another one of Israel's enemies. If you recall, Syria, Damascus is to the northeast of Israel. Now we're going to move all the way to the southwest of Israel for the next enemy, the nation that was an enemy of Israel. Gaza, thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not remove the punishment thereof. Gaza is the capital of Philistia. Now, just a short ways from uh, uh, Gaza is Gath, from which that mighty giant Goliath came. So you know what kind of people God is speaking to and is judging, exercising his character as a consuming fire. He says, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, will I not remove the punishment thereof? What was their atrocity? You read further in verse six, you will discover that they, like others, had uh, discovered that within their own hearts there was a need of greater boundaries and so they pushed into the land of Israel and this time as they push into the land of Israel the people who inhabited the land that they took by means of force they sold those people into slavery even into the hands of the king of Edom now God looked upon this without favor and he says I'm going to punish you for it and verse 7 says, I'm going to send a fire among you. The next verse says, verse 8, he declares that I am going to destroy Ashdod. I'm going to destroy Ekron. I'm going to destroy Gaza and the others. Now, why is that so important? Because the people of this particular country depended upon these major cities for their support and their livelihood and for God to remove and bring to naught these four great cities and the land of Philistia meant that the people of, Israel, of, of Philistia were going to suffer irreparably. Their support, their livelihood was going to be taken away. Now then we go to the next one, if we may. This is in verse 9. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions and for four, 
I have moved along in grace and mercy and tolerated it thus far. Now then, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four will I not remove the punishment thereof. Tyre was the capital city of uh, Phoenicia, which is to the northwest of Israel. And you will discover that he says, I will send fire upon Tyre. Why? The atrocity was the same as that of Gaza. Those that they took when they enlarged their borders and took part of the land of Israel, the inhabitants of that part of land that was captured, they were sold into captivity and slavery. And that was against the standards of God. God says, I'm going to punish you for that. Now we go to verse 11. And he says, thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions and four, will I not remove the punishment from Edom? Now Edom was the capital city of what is known as that area of the Edomites. There are some other cities in the land of Edom that are outstanding in the word of God, and one of them is Basra. Another is Teman. Another is Petra. Now what did the Edomites do? As you recall, the Edomites were the half-brethren of uh, Jacob and his children. They are descendants of Esau. And Esau, as you recall, when he settled in that particular land to the southeast of what is known as the land of Israel now. When God was leading Jacob into the land of Israel, the land that he had promised to Abram as an uh, everlasting possession to him and his seed after him, it was necessary for Jacob to take his family through the land of his half-brother Esau. If you, uh, uh, I mean his full brother Esau, excuse me. His full brother Esau. And in going through, he wanted to get permission. But instead, the Edomites said, no, you can't come through. And they took the sword to their own kinsfolk and used it on them. And they began to harbor in their hearts an anger that enabled them to just tear their own brothers and sisters apart, tear their flesh apart. You look at the latter part, if you will, please, of verse 11, and you will see. You tear the flesh and you harbor wrath perpetually and continually. You know, God doesn't look for, with favor upon anyone who nurtures hate, even in the life of the child of God. If you're nurturing a degree of spite and hate in your heart, you better take care of it. Your God and mine, who is a consuming fire, is going to judge you, dear child of God, for that. He's going to chasten you for that. Now, what is he going to do for the Edomites? He says, I am going to destroy Basra and Teman. What's so important about Basra? Well, you know, God did just that in his judgment with the people of, the, uh, of Edom. Basra is the place where God is going to tuck away his, his, his remnant of Israel during that awful tribulation period when the battle of the Armageddon is in full, uh, full heat. You remember the Lord Jesus says in chapter 12 of the book of Revelation, chapter verse 14, that he is going to give Israel the wings of a mighty eagle to fly away into her place in the wilderness. And if you would read uh, uh, Micah chapter 2, Verses 12 and 13, you will discover that God is selected, that this great city of Basra, Petra, Teman, and the heights of Edom are going to be the place where Israel will flee in that day. So God has judged the enemies of Israel and shown favor to his people Israel in expressing his judgment as a consuming fire upon them. Now when we get to verse 13, we come to uh, a very interesting one. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions upon Ammon, 
and for four will I not remove the punishment thereof. Ammon, who is Ammon? Well, you'll recall that the atrocity, if you continue to read here in verse 13 of Ammon, was that when Ammon wanted to enlarge her borders, taking a part of the land of Israel, the women folk who were with children, they took a sword and ripped them apart. You wonder why they did that? I want you to see, my dear friend, that like father, like son, is a principle that prevails that often we ignore. Do you know who Ammon was? If you would go back with me to the 19th chapter of the book of Genesis, you recall that God had paid a visit in chapter 18 to Abram to announce to him that he was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abram had some relatives in Sodom and Gomorrah, one by the name of Lot and his family. And in chapter 19, the heavenly messengers are dispensed by God to Sodom and Gomorrah for the destruction of those two mighty cities. And uh, as they make their entrance, why Lot immediately recognizes them and he runs out and he bows down before them so religiously, you know. And uh, he asks and requests that they turn in and spend the night with him. And they said, no, we don't want to come into your house. We don't want the people of this city to think we're one like you. Because Lot, though he was righteous man and vexed his soul over the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah, his deportment was something else something else and here God in the form of these angels did not even want to go into the house of that one who was supposed to be a Christian and so they announced a lot if you have any here besides yourself you get them and leave these cities for we're going to rain fire and brimstone upon them and don't you look back and you remember how Lot went to witness to his sons-in-law that had married his daughters and he sounded it to them as one that mocked then you recall that Lot took his wife and his two unmarried daughters and they started out of Sodom and Gomorrah. And when you got down to about verse 26, you'll read that she looked back from behind Lot at those flaming cities and she was turned to a pillar of salt. I wonder why she looked back. I think it's a fulfillment of the, of the warning of the Lord Jesus in Luke chapter 17, verse 28. Likewise also it was in the days of Lot. They did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they builded. That's a description of prosperity, my friend. Then when you go down to verse 32 of Luke 17, he says, remember Lot's wife. You see, she'd been so fixed in the prosperity of Sodom and Gomorrah that when she looked back, uh, that when she was asked to leave, she just had to look back once more, even though it was in disobedience to the will of God. So he says, remember Lot's wife. Oh, child of God, don't become so fixed in the prosperity and the materialism of our age that it's impossible for you to obey the will and the word of God. Remember Lot's wife, and now she's gone. Well, here's Lot left with his two unmarried daughters. And if you'll begin at verse 33 of the 19th chapter of the book of Genesis, you'll discover that Lot has his two daughters out here, and it's the first night out from Sodom and Gomorrah. They're ready to turn in. Do you know what the oldest daughter did? She made her father drunk, and she went in to lie with him that night and had a child by her own father. Do you know what she called his name? Moab. She comes out the next morning, she says to her younger daughter, do you know what I did? I made my father drunk last night and I went in and had an, a, a sexual affair with him and now I'm gonna have a child. How about me doing the same thing for you tonight? And she did. Do you know what she named her son, the youngest daughter? Ben-Ami, from whom are the descendants called the Ammonites unto this day. And that's about whom we're reading now in verse 13 of the first chapter of the prophecy of Amos. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Ammon and for four will I not remove the punishment or will I not turn away the punishment. Why? 
because when Ammon expanded their borders to take in more of Israel's territory, the women folk that were in that territory, they ripped apart. That is, the women folk who were with child ripped apart with a sword. Ah, do you see how they disregarded the sanctity of sex and thus from the very beginning with their own father down to the very last when the punishment, the judgment of God fell upon them. When you get to chapter 2, verse 1, Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab. Ah, you see, these are brothers, if you please, so to speak, of the Ammonites. Their mothers were sisters. Thus for three transgressions of Moab and for four will I not remove the trans will I not remove or turn away the punishment. And what was their atrocity? What was their atrocity? But the punishment was the same. I will send a consuming fire upon you. And hastening now, may I say the final word. The psalmist is good to help us out in understanding this part of the nature of God. That part of his nature which is rigid disciplinarian, a consuming fire. In Psalm 11, verse 4, we read something like this. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his throne. The eyes of the Lord behold, are the, his eyes behold, and his eyelids try the children of men. Do you know what the last part literally means? Jeremiah says in chapter 17, verse 10, I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins to give unto every man according to his work and according to the fruit of his doings. God is searching the heart. How does he search? His eyelids try the children of men. It literally means this. When you want to see a thing, you can look at it with your eyes wide open. But when you want to see it more clearly, you squinch your eyelids so that you search it out well. Our God searching our hearts today is squinting his eyes, for he will tolerate nothing short of a likeness to his dear son in any of us. And before his hand of discipline falls upon you, O child of God, exercise the privilege of 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us instead of punishing us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Be sure that you clearly understand the difference between asking for forgiveness and confession. You are not licensed to ask for forgiveness in the New Testament. In Christ we have forgiveness according to the riches of his grace, Ephesians 1, 7. Oh, you say, what about Matthew 6, where he says, forgive us our trespasses. That's a prayer that is to be prayed by those who were inhabitants of the earth when the Lord Jesus returns to be King of kings and Lord of lords, and the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. For if you would go right on down a few verses, you will discover in Matthew 6, that if ye shall forgive men their trespasses, then will I forgive yours. But if you don't forgive men their trespasses, neither will I forgive you. What is God saying? He is declaring that when you ask forgiveness of me, I'll forgive you on the basis of the way you forgive others. Now, ladies and gentlemen, if that isn't a gesture of works, I don't know anything about it. 
And we are children of God because of his grace, not because of his works, not by works of righteousness, which we have done. By grace are we saved through faith and that not of yourselves, not of works, lest any man should boast. Then that prayer doesn't apply to you nor to me. We do not ask forgiveness. We have it in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the way the child of God is forgiven because of his or her deportment and conduct and behavior is by means of confession. Now, confession is that which you do voluntarily. Confession is that voluntarily act, voluntary act of making known to God the thing you did that was wrong, and you know it. And the moment you confess, he's faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all and from all unrighteousness. Oh, the blessing of being a child of God. Though he has a characteristic of being a consuming fire, our father, a rigid disciplinarian, this is the way, walk you in it. See that everything you say and do is according to the life of the standard of the Lord Jesus Christ and not your own thoughts. If you do not confess your sin when there's disobedience, then for three transgressions and for four, I will not fail to discipline you. You've been listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast and a message William Stewart presented at Moody Week 1970. William Stewart was a former businessman and pastor. Audio copies of this and many other messages from the podcast are available at moodyaudio.com. Today in the Word Radio is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of the Moody Bible Institute.